0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
1: Muddy Media
2: Hello guys, thanks so much for tuning in to this week's Totally Football League show Extra Time. I'm Ali Maxwell and George Ellick is with me. It has become something of a running joke that this podcast is always a busy episode and that's never more true than this week George.
3: I mean you say that there wasn't any league one or league two games in the week so I'm going to say it's a little (laughs) less busy than usual and we've only got one interview if anything it's quite a quiet show (laughs) I would say. Um, We're going to be looking back at the championship games from midweek I'm afraid we are not going to pick out players managers and teams of the week from the two games in league two. I think that'll probably be a clean sweep for for Newport and Colchester. But we're going to be looking at the Championship games, going through our awards. We've got a cracking interview with the Athletics, Stu James, on his piece about the statistical quirks in the championship around the lack of goals this season that dates back to not even just last century but the century before that and also picking his brains on the team that he supports Swansea City and then finally we'll be looking ahead to the weekend where there is of course a full slate championship league one and league two Ali and I will be picking our favorite most interesting game from each and previewing it with our sponsor Paddy Power.
2: And if you've any interest in the governance of the EFL, we've had some breaking news this morning as well, which we chat to Stu about. Thanks for joining us. Lock yourselves in. This is the Totally Football League Show. Extra time in association with Paddy
4: Power.
3: This Christmas slash Hanukkah slash Winterval slash holiday
4: season, The Athletic wants you to bog off. Because when you buy one annual subscription, you'll get another one for free. And similarly, when you gift a year's subscription, you can get one for yourself and no extra cost. So wave goodbye to 2020 and say hello to 2021 by sharing the gift of The Athletic's unrivaled football coverage with analysis and in-depth features from the very best writers around, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts, including this one. Find out more and sign up today at theathletic.com totally.
0: You're listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell,
3: sponsored by Paddy Power. Yeah, so a slightly less busy midweek this time with just the championship and a couple of League Two games as well. But we are still going to go through our player, manager and team of the midweek. And to do so, firstly, Ali is going to kick off with a side who beat Middlesbrough pretty comfortably at home.
2: (laughs) And that's why they're our team of the week in the championship. It's Preston North End. It's definitely not the first time we have anointed Preston North End the championship team of the week. Over the last few weeks, in fact, just this time last week, we were talking about a 3-2 win over Bournemouth, I believe. And, well, here are some of the things that might not be direct quotes, but are the sort of themes that might have been floating around Preston North End Twitter uh, and online forums about a month ago after a poor run of form. There was talk of staleness, potentially that Alex Neil had lost the dressing room, which is always that. Classic phrase. During a, a poor run of form, um, there was fingers being pointed at the board saying that with a, a lack of investment, especially in um, championship ready players uh, and leaving them with a thin squad, that the club had stood still and therefore had gone backwards. But the, the picture is a little rosier now. And I think we've been reminded lest we had forgotten, that Alex Neil is a fine manager at this level and a fine manager for Preston North End to have. Uh, and I think it would be wrong to, wrong to think otherwise. And watching them last night against Middlesbrough, it was hard not to be impressed for a few reasons, really. I mean, 3-0 winners in, in what looked like a tough game. So many of the championship fixtures at the moment are so tight, aren't they? There's not a lot between teams. And so a 3-0 win really stands out. And it, it wasn't... You know, this wasn't a 3-0 win where they grabbed a couple of long-range goals and, and got lucky at the other end. This was a, a dominant performance. Um, they not only managed to keep Borough from any major chances uh, completely until Tavernier had won at 3-0 down, but also sliced open a Borough defence that we had certainly been calling the best in the division to the tune not only of three goals, but to be honest with you, Barkhazen in the first half, Stockley and Sinclair in the second, all had Huge chances that they weren't that they didn't take, and therefore, I think we're comfortable saying that this was just a brilliant team performance. Um, it's been a tough time for Preston and so many other clubs in the championship with injuries, and they probably do have a, a thinner squad than most, you'd say. And it has been fully stretched recently on the weekend. It was Bauer ruled out for the season, and Ben Pearson, who's only just got back from injury, who's out for at least a few weeks. Um, so Plenty mucking in and performing. Alan Brown at the base of midfield last night. He's already played in five different positions this season. His versatility is absolutely insane. And Brad Potts stood out for me just through pure energy, really. A lot of the the, the reports from people at games at the moment and watching championship fixtures is that, you know, the schedule is creating games that can lack intensity, even with uh, some fans there, which there weren't at Deepdale on. Wednesday night, but Potts's energy and intensity really stood out. He caused Middlesbrough's midfield and their back line a lot of problems, um, running in behind. Davies and Huntington did very well at the back for Preston, and it was good for us, George, to see Tom Bayliss come off the bench and, uh, and look comfortable, look like he might be ready to contribute to a Preston side, because there's a player that we loved when he came through at Coventry a couple of years ago, but has never really troubled the first team at Preston. Central center of the park is an area where they're quite strong, but... Hopefully Bayliss can start, you know, filling in because he's only 21 years old. There's there's absolutely no rush um, to say that it was a poor signing or that he hasn't developed as we would like. There's plenty of time for him, so it'd be good to see him a little more often. And uh, Rhys Jakobsen came off the bench, summer signing, of course, and he's had a, a few key performances and a few duds, I think it's fair to say. But he really stretched Middlesbrough And and, you know, to see Stockley go off, who may not be much of a goal threat, but is certainly a, a physical threat. And to see Jakobsen, also a physical threat, coming on, must have been a nightmare for those Borough defenders. So a, a brilliant night for Preston, a fantastic victory. Five of their next six games are against teams below them in the table. And that could be, well, it's it's an interesting period for them, put it that way, because they are in 13th place, bang in mid-table, really. It feels to me like over the last few years, North End have often produced their best performances against teams like Borough, against teams above them, dare I say it. And it's actually in games against bottom half sides where they have flattered to deceive. Games where they go in as favourites, except Expected to take the game to the opposition and to win comfortably, that's when we tend to be left feeling a little uh, shortchanged by this North End side. So that's the test for them over the next few weeks, month or so. Um, But a brilliant performance on Wednesday night. And credit to Alex Neal and the full squad who are are filling in at the moment. uh, Really impressive stuff. George, I'm sure we could have given a player of the week to a Preston North End player, but we can't do that. We won't do that. Who has taken the gong (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, just before I say who it is, any Birmingham fans out there expecting me to say John Turrell, there is a reason why I'm not going to say John Turrell and that will become evident pretty quickly. Um, so don't get too upset early on. It's because you uh,
2: hate John it,
3: it's That is not the reason and that's <laughs> not going to become evident either. But it's, uh, it's, it's Christian Bielek at Derby. Now, of course, Derby didn't win on the weekend, but it's a bit short-sighted, I think, just to look at... You know, the the teams that won, who was the best player for them? There were some standout performances from certain players. Uh, Emi Buendia, if Emi Buendia wasn't Emi Buendia, I think his performance would have got him this gong, but he plays like that basically every week. So we can't give it to him every time. Troy Deeney played very well up front for Watford getting a goal and an assist. Joe Rawls in centre midfield for Cardiff, another one who played well in a winning team. But the significance of Bielik's return to Derby is huge, and you know there are so many headlines around what's going on at Derby County at the moment. Takeover, new manager, Rooney in the dugout. It's it's all kind of headline stuff, but the the form is starting to turn. And one of the constants in that, Philippe Kocku not being there, is one. But the return of Christian Bielik to the side is another, and I would say a pretty significant one at that as well. You know, he was bought last summer from Arsenal after a successful loan spell at Charlton for for ten million pounds played a couple of games before doing his ACL and I I think with these players when they get such a serious injury you're always slightly concerned as to whether or not they will be the same when they come back when they return to full fitness and Bielek may have only played three games so far this season he's played 90 minutes in all three so fitness certainly not a concern the first game was under Philippe Koku, and they lost that 2-0 against Barnsley but he started the last three games in a row and they're unbeaten in those three um, the the will draw against Brentford in midweek, the 1-0 win against uh, Millwall on the weekend, and then the 1-0 draw against Coventry as well. And it's in those last two games, the Millwall and the Brentford game especially, where he's really shown what he's all about, because Bielik is a player who can basically do it all. He, he's not just your blocking defensive midfielder. He reminds me a little bit, dare I say, of Sergio Busquets, a player who can break up play very well, cover ground, and also has the silky technical ability on the ball to, to play progressive passes to break the line. And, uh, and we're starting to see that as well. And Derby fans are absolutely crowing about his performances at the moment. There is no doubt at all as to whether or not that 10 million pounds for them was well spent. And, and I often find it a little bit frustrating when you see certain social accounts handpicking stats around players in 90 minutes, because you know that realistically, rather than looking for the stats and then finding which player is best, they normally pick a player and then just cherry pick the stats that they think go best. But in this case, because it's quite hard to summarise when a defensive midfielder plays well, although obviously keeping Brentford's, um, you know, for, for what was a very porous defence, keeping Brentford at bay in their own new stadium, albeit, is an impressive feat and one that would need someone like Bielik to play well. The stats from this game do tell the story about what a, what kind of a player he is you know he won 11 of his 14 duels 7 of his nine aerial duels two interceptions eight ball recoveries long ball accuracy 100% you know this is a guy who is breaking up play very well he's being accurate with his passing when when playing in transition too and when you think of the player that he's kind of having to step in for in that role i mean i know that Wayne Rooney doesn't do the defensive side of the game but in terms of being that kind of ball playing midfielder He's got quite big shoes to fill, although maybe I should say quite small shoes to fill. I've got one of Wayne Rooney's boots in my house and he's actually got tiny feet. <laughs> but um, it's it's certainly um, an exciting time, I think, for Derby. Whether or, not, whether or not Rooney ends up being the man in the dugout, I don't know. But I'm, I'm pretty convinced that so long as he stays fit, Bielek is going to be amongst the first names on the team. Well, probably the first name on the team sheet for Derby. And that can only be a good thing.
2: Christian Bielik compared to Sergio Busquets, big reveal about the size of Wayne Rooney's feet. That was vintage, <laughs> that was liquid. <laughs> Totally Football League show, extra time, George. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, you almost apologised for it before you did it. I thought you justified the stats very well, but as we know, you can cherry pick those pretty nicely. I mean, my six-a-side game last night, I dare say you could cherry pick a couple of stats that made me look quite good, but the reality was I uh, gave the ball away for two goals and rolled my ankle, so it actually wasn't that good for my team <laughs> at all. So, you know, that's what that's what those stats don't say. Um, are, you,
3: are you critiquing my my choice? <laughs> no, i
2: no, I absolutely love Christian Beinic and I mean I've had a soft spot for him ever since that that Charlton promotion where he was just fantastic. We've spoken at length about how helpful players like he, uh, players like Belic are for managers because of their versatility and the way that you know he can switch between a back three and playing um, defensive midfield in front of a back four, and you don't have to make a sub in order to to do that. And his performance levels are always the same, always high. So I'm I'm fully behind that. I was thrilled to see that he's back and playing well. Uh, and our manager of the midweek in the championship is Itor Karanka of Birmingham City. This is why John Turrell was not the player of the week. He had a very strong claim, I think it's fair to say. But I wanted to give credit to Karanka because I suppose when you're looking at, at teams who have won games in midweek and you're working out whether to give them player of the week or manager of the week or team of the week, I suppose for the manager, you're looking for someone who's who's either whose team selection or whose tactics appear to have um, been the sort of key impact in that game. Um, And I think there's something to be said here for Karanka and what he's done in the last few days, in which Birmingham have beaten Bristol City, who are in the playoffs, and Reading, who are in the playoffs when they beat them. And six points against those opposition, uh, both away from home, is so impressive. And he switched to a 4-2-3-1 on the weekend, having played uh, with a back three for the majority of the, the previous month or so. And, I mean, performances have clearly improved um, in that time. They made it impossible for, for Reading's creative players, Elise and Ajaria, to get on the ball and to create. And so they really cut off that supply line to Mete and João, certainly in the first half anyway. They did rely on on some magic from John Torao for the two goals, both of them from outside the box. Um, but perhaps that's a reward for Karanka because... There was a bit of consternation about just how defensive the mindset was for the first two months of the season. You know the fact that they played a, a back five where the fullbacks out and Pederson they they can get forward, but you wouldn't say they're the most exciting attacking um, wing backs. So at times it really did look like a, a flat back five, and sometimes with two, sometimes even three central. Fairly defensive midfield players in front of them. So he's taken a player out of that defensive unit and they don't appear to have lost too much of that solid defence which has come to define them this season. But it's given themselves more of a presence in the final third. You know, Torral might have been the one getting the headlines. I dare say if they were playing the same system as previously and one of Sanchez and Leco was on the bench, then maybe Torral has a little less space. Maybe the defence have a little less to think about and Torral doesn't get those opportunities. So um, credit to Karanka for a, a tactical switch that seems to have worked. It definitely makes watching the games a bit more palatable I think for fans um, although it would be wrong to say that they are now a constant threat that he's turned them into a brilliant attacking side overnight but a really positive week you have to say. 10 points above the relegation zone now uh, Birmingham. Um, 15th position. Can he build from here Karanka? Can he Can he work towards them becoming as I've said there more of a constant threat? I hope so because they've got a lot of talented players in those forward positions. Um, they've got really only Hogan and Djukovic, two very different number nines. um, But that gives them sort of different options depending on their opposition. Um, But behind them, they've got a lot of talent. You know, they've got Bella, they've got Leko, uh, Sanchez has been an excellent signing. Toral's clearly on form. They signed Halilovic not long ago. They've still got Dan Crowley, who we haven't seen very much of. So karanka has got options, and I'm I'm feeling positive that he can, yeah, that he can move Birmingham towards being a, a bit more of an attacking force while maintaining uh, a defensive solidity that's been very impressive this season. Uh, karanka, our manager of the week for three points away from home. At Inform Reading uh, and a little bit uh, of residual praise for the uh, for the win on the weekend as well against Bristol City. So that's our Championship midweek review. Of course, there were plenty of other uh, key performers, plenty of other impressive results. We restrict ourselves to just three selections from this, but of course there'll be plenty of happy fans out there. Certainly, Barnsley and Norwich and Bristol City fans for their narrow wins on Wednesday night against Wickham, Blackburn and Nottingham Forest respectively on Tuesday night. Huddersfield Town got their second 2-0 win in a row, beating Sheffield Wednesday, who are still without a win under Tony Pulis. Uh, Cardiff City will feel hard done by not to have been represented here. They went to Stoke, they went 1-0 down, and they left with all three points to make it four wins in a row for Neil Harris's side. Uh, and Watford, a fairly routine home win, 2-0 against Rotherham. They did the damage in the first half. Uh, Coventry and Luton, Millwall and QPR, Swansea and Bournemouth, Uh, Brentford and Derby, as mentioned, all picking up, uh, all all drawing their games in midweek. Next up, we're going to zoom out a little bit and take a look at the championship as a whole this season. Some key stats and trends. Maybe it hasn't quite been as goal laden as we've come to expect. And we've dialed up Stuart James to talk us through it of The Athletic. Stuart is a, a fantastic features writer for The Athletic site and app, and he's also... A Swansea City fan. So, we're going to talk a little bit about the playoff bound Swans as well.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24 7 US based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right.
1: Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at
3: discover.com slash credit card. Great to be joined by Stu James on the podcast today. And Stu, your piece came out earlier in the week, Fewest Goals Ever why the championship has lost its chaos. Uh, I mean, (laughs) it's certainly the case that, you know, since there haven't been fans in stadiums this season, the championship goal lines have been been pretty low. There are some remarkable stats in the piece itself. Can you just talk us through what it was that kind of drew your attention to this statistical quirk going on in the EFL?
4: Yeah, I guess, you know, first things first. I love the championship. You know, some people will know I'm a Swansea supporter. Uh, When they got relegated from the Premier League, I was, I I was gutted more for my son than anything else. But actually, the Championship's been a real breath of fresh air. Um, And and, uh, you know, it's so wildly unpredictable. And having uh, endured survival football in the Premier League for a few seasons, it's been it's been great fun personally seeing, uh, you know, my team go. Uh, to places where I think, well, we might not get a result and you, and you do end up, uh, you know, winning there. So I've I've really embraced the championship and really enjoyed it. But this season, I just, I guess I was looking at it through a supporter's eyes and initially I'm thinking, it seems a little bit dull. There seem to be hardly any goals around. Now, what I didn't realise was when I started looking and, and actually, look, truth be told here, I went back sort of, first of all, on the goals, 10 seasons and, and I realised it was the lowest ever. and um. I trawled through sort of 20 seasons looking at other things like you know points per game that kind of thing because I felt Norwich were top of the league with with not that many points which proved to be the case you know um they, they okay now they're on 34 points from 17 games but at the point I was looking at they were averaging less than 2 points a game and and top of the table which was highly unusual so it felt like there was some strange there was some strange numbers around and and I went to up to basically about the average um uh goals per game and said, you know, I've looked back so many seasons and and they said, well, that's actually the lowest, it's the lowest in the second tier ever. And And I said, what do you mean by ever? And and they said, well, going back to eighteen ninety three, and wow. <laughs> and you know when you sort of get a stat like that, and you just think, well, that's that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and and then I sort of in my head, I'm sort of growing up, you know, during the uh, as a child in the in the eighties, watching a bit of Serie A, and thinking how low the scoring was. And then I started looking at some of those, um, you know, uh, getting into this far too deep now, but started looking at some of those tables and thinking, um, actually, it is like Serie A in nineteen eighty, the goal scoring here and. So what what what's changed? And then it's interesting interacting with uh people on the back of the piece. And some people saying, Well, what do you expect? There aren't fans in stadiums. And I'm like, Well, that's not the case in the Premier League in terms of the average goals per game. It's it's the highest it's been for ages. And that's not purely down to VAR and the handball rule that's driven everyone bonkers. You know, that's so so something really strange has happened in the championships and and um I had lots of really interesting numbers. And I I'll hold my hands up on this. It was Daniel Fark, who came back and highlighted something that I probably should have seen myself when he mentioned, and he said it a little bit in jest, but he said, well, look at, you know, some of the coaches who are, who are sort of back in there now and, and mentioned, you know, Warnock, Karanka, and Poulis. And I thought, yeah, hang on a minute. Look at their goals per game, not just how many of their teams scoring, how many they're conceding. And, and I looked again this morning when we did the article, there were eight teams averaging less than a goal per game. It's nine now. I think Middlesbrough have sort of slipped into that as well in the back of the last few results. So that is really, really weird. Um, and that we have to say as well, there are teams who are doing very well not scoring many goals. You know, Watford, Bristol City win 1 0 last night with Jeju scoring a late goal. Swansea are fourth in the table and have scored, I think it's 18 in 17 games, but they've kept nine clean sheets. So you'd have to say there's a lot of defensive football being played. Um, a lot of really cagey, cautious uh, football and um, and obviously yeah, the uh, natural consequence of that is we are seeing a lot fewer goals.
2: Stu, this is not good for business, I must say, because uh, we sort of built a, a quasi-career on uh, calling this league the best in the world the, mo- the most exciting. Let me answer um, that question again. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's um, you know clutching at straws, I would say, that it is still full of intrigue, it's, it's fair to say, and the unpredictable nature of it hasn't changed one bit. Um, the, the, the best part of the piece for me was not the depressing stats, it was the access that you got uh, to the thoughts of a number of managers at championship level so um you know we're all we're all scratching our heads at the the whys and the hows and actually it's these guys who are, who are living it so i mean you spoke to daniel Fark. there's quotes from paul Warren, gary rowick chris hewton and uh mysteriously an anonymous championship manager as well um what were the most interesting conclusions i guess given to you by those guys
4: yeah um no one can really put their finger on this, and and I guess actually I remember when I was sort of speaking to the editors at the Athletic when I started writing the piece, and, and said, look, you know, we're not going to find an answer here. There's not there's not going to be a you know a, a sort of silver bullet here. But it was interesting speaking to the actually the guy who did want to remain anonymous because he made some points to me which I'm you know considered before really. The schedule is obviously absolutely crazy it's, it's mad in a normal championship year it's you know it's, it's bonkers at the moment and and he was basically saying we can't even train we cannot work on pattern of play shape tactical stuff on the training pitch um, you know he was giving examples of getting back late from away games then the following day has to be a recovery day say uh, like today or Thursday then the Friday you're not getting chance to do that kind of stuff on the training ground because you're easing into the game again on the Saturday and then he gave the example of having a player who'd signed on deadline day who trained once with the rest of the squad with the with the whole squad you know which which initially seems absurd but then you stop and think well yeah you've had an international break where loads of people go off uh, at some clubs some championship clubs and then you've got um, a situation also where this this crazy sort of Saturday Tuesday Saturday Wednesday uh, thing is going on and so that's probably not helped with the with the fluency in matches. Substitutes flagged up. You know, there was one game I think I mentioned in the piece where nine subs were made in the last 17 minutes of a game. So you're not going to get fluid performances. You're not going to get consistency. Um, I think also from me watching it, what I find interesting is, and I don't know how you measure this, but the intensity and the tempo of games seems probably a, a knock-on effect of all this schedule, but seems a lot flatter, a lot slower. Um, so, you know, I'd, it'd be interesting actually to look at ball, the, the amount of time that the ball's in play, because um, I'd imagine that's probably down quite a bit. But, yeah, there, there was some, you know, um, some interesting observations. Gary Rowett talking about Mills, saying, you know, first 10 minutes, I'd be saying to my players, you know, it's cliched, but the sort of up and at stuff, let's get the fans with us, let's get them behind us get the opposition thinking crikey, we've got to just weather this period and he said none of that happens you know you can have a really good start you can force a couple of corners and a keeper make a good save he said but this just doesn't feel like there's anything there in terms of momentum outside of what you do on the pitch so um yeah we're in a obviously a you know a truly unique situation with the pandemic but i do find the contrast with the premier league interesting in terms of how goals have tailed off here and how the opposite's happened uh, there.
2: Let's just um, talk about one of the teams towards the top of the table, a team that you follow. Closely, Stu, um, mainly stuck on iFollow or Swans TV, if they've got that um, this season, of course. But a, a team that is um, performing well towards the top end of the table. We've been very impressed by Swansea's start to the season, the way that they've maintained um, what was a really good run of form uh, towards the back end of last season before defeating the playoffs. Um, have, have you, as someone with more of an emotional attachment to it, been as impressed um, as pleased by that or was this kind of what was expected and you're looking for more?
4: No, it's it's been a strange season really. They've done they have done really well. I mean defensively they've got nine clean sheets in 17 games. I think it's the best in the across all four divisions. Um, that's obviously fantastic. But as I touched on earlier, there is a struggle with scoring goals at the other end. And Swansea are in an odd situation where they don't actually play with a centre forward or, or not a typical number nine. I don't even know if I can call Jamal Lowe a false line because a false nine because really what they're doing is um, is almost just trying to get through this situation where they don't have a centre forward. Um, they obviously had Ryan Brewster on loan for the second half of last season, who was absolutely exceptional. And someone like that would make a massive difference to Swansea now. They're very well organized, but they're heavily dependent on IU for goals and creativity. Uh, he's been exceptional. He's he's really really surprised me. Uh, I I thought when he returned to the club after spending the first season in the championship out when he was out on loan in Turkey, I hold my hands up. I questioned how committed he'd be. How much he'd want to play in the championship and he was superb last season and he's carried on like that this season yes he's really well paid he's probably the highest paid player in the championship but you know we all know that doesn't necessarily translate into performances so he's been really really good they are really crying out for though a center forward yacurez who's come on loan from brighton has had a few outings and in, in struggled if i'm honest uh young liam cullen is probably one for the future and jamal lowe is really being asked to play a role that isn't 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 really his natural role. I think he's more of a wide player who comes in rather than an out-and-out centre forward. So that, that's that been difficult. The big loss for Swansea has been Morgan Gibbs-White, who was absolutely brilliant in the first three or four games. Looked like he was really enjoying playing again after a different se- difficult season at Wolves. Unfortunately, he suffered a fractured foot and won't be back to January. So... They brought in Casey Palmer on loan from Bristol City on a short-term loan. He, I'd like to have seen him have a bit more game time, really. Sometimes Cooper plays quite a cautious midfield with Grimes, Fulton and Smith, none of whom are sort of a number 10. Sometimes he plays Jan Dander, who's still sort of finding his way a little bit. So they're probably epitomized what I was talking about with that piece from championship, really, you know, very difficult to beat, don't concede many goals, don't score many goals. And obviously they've got a huge game on the weekend with with Cardiff coming into view now, and Cardiff seems to be going really well at the moment.
3: Yeah, we're going to be previewing that game between us in a second, but just before we speak, kind of move on from Swansea, you know, you mentioned some of the, the issues that they've got in terms of personnel and goal scoring, but a look at the table in Swansea are currently in fourth position on 30 points, just four points off the top. And if we think back to to Graham Potter's season and the good work that he did that led to him getting a move up to the Premier League, not many managers get moves from the Championship to the Premier League. Do do you think that the job that Steve Cooper's doing, especially as, you know, he still is a rookie manager, this is his first senior club job. Do you think the job he does Goes a little bit underappreciated either by Swansea fans or by the wider media.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think really does. I think it's a really good point. I think certainly by the wider media it does because I don't think I think a lot of people from the outside just look and think, "Oh, Swansea had you know a long time in the Premier League. You know, they, they they're a, you know they they should be a Premier League club in the Championship really with their squad." And, and it's anything but. Yeah, you know, I, I draw. If I try and do it, make a comparison with Bournemouth. I know Bournemouth lost some key players in the summer, but Bournemouth squad. When I look at that starting eleven the other night. There's a hundred pound, hundred million pounds worth of sign-ins. There's loads of Premier League experience, and actually, players who've still got a lot to offer. The contrast with what happened with Swansea when they came down, and what Potter inherited, was a, you know a real mess. Players at the in the twilight of their career, really, um, who who were still on good money from the Premier League years. Uh, obviously, he departed. So did McBurney. So did Daniel James. So it was almost another rebuild again for Steve Cooper, who's made excellent use of his contacts. You know, I think that would I think people would be aware of that uh, who are who are looking at up and coming managers and he's really, you know, utilised that. I mean it's become a bit of a standing joke as a Swansea fan, the England World Cup uh, under seventeen team. You know, you sort of you, you look through it and think, right, where's the striker in that that could come in if it's not Brewster? And but fair play to him. It, just because you've managed a group of players doesn't mean they'll want to play for you again. They obviously do because they like him and respect him. I think he's you know, very much what we think of as a, as a manager stroke coach now who's out on the training ground when when people can get on the training ground doing stuff with players so yeah he's done he's done a really good job it feels from a fan's perspective like a slightly different way of playing it was more possession based i'd say under potter but the thing under graham and i love watching swansea under graham they let in an awful lot of goals Swansea, it was over 60 goals that season but it was it was it was really good fun to watch. Cooper's certainly tightened Swansea up defensively. They've been far better defending set pieces. I'm setting myself up for a full here ahead of Cardiff on the weekend, <laughs> right now, especially with Keith Moore out front. Uh, but yeah, um, yeah it, to answer your question, I think it's underappreciated outside. I think within the the fan base, especially that brilliant run post lockdown last season that got them into the playoffs. I think people recognise that he's done a really good job.
2: I don't think that anything could sum up. That season under Potter, it, it, my first memory is of an incredible team goal scored from basically their own byline against Ipswich, uh, and then you you look at the score and realise they lost that game 3-2 at home to a, a very very poor Ipswich side. So um, that really springs to mind. But but what what they did score some magnificent goals. Uh, that's Thanks for, for reminding
4: sure. me of that game. Yeah. That, was, that, <laughs> that was the first game Ipswich had won that season. I remember being there with my lad, and it's like you know you turn up thinking this is a sure three points today. The funny thing is. You, I, you're right about that goal. And I remember the people in the crowd, it started with Nordfeld playing to Leroy Fur in their own six-yard box. And it's, it's interesting. Supporters will say, I want to see fluid attacking football. I want to see us keeping the ball. I want to see possession. I want to see, say, at Swansea, what they call the Swansea way. And sometimes you think, how much do you really want to see that? Are you really prepared for your team to take chances at the back, Or are you going to be gasping and moaning when it goes wrong? You know, And, and I had a long chat with Graham about that that season. And... Um, you know, you, you're almost educating the crowd at times, which obviously at Swansea, it happened over a period of time going back to Martinez. But but anyway, there was still, I can remember that, you know, there were moments during that move where people were thinking, you could feel it inside the stadium, like, what are they doing here? But yeah, it finished with Selena scoring. And the odd thing is, as a fan, I walked away that day. I, I'm not going to lie, I was really, really so frustrated that I was thinking, this is classic Swansea, they've lost that game. But I also thought, I really enjoyed watching that performance. And, and often, that's you know we want our team to win, but I don't get consumed by results. I sort of I'm more consumed by performances if that makes sense because you know, I kind of feel that we go to be entertained, we go to escape other things in our life and to have fun, and enjoy it. So, so yeah, as much as it drove me bonkers, the result it was it, it it was there was a lot of fun to be had in the way Swansea played.
2: I mean. This couldn't have worked out more perfectly, Stu. Since we've been recording the podcast, there's been some breaking news in the EFL. And somehow we've got the perfect person on the line to react to it because Trevor Birch has been appointed as the new chief executive of the EFL, succeeding David Baldwin. And I think I'm not speaking out of turn when I say that as people who follow the EFL, EFL fans, there's always um, a desire to see people taking these jobs who you really feel you can believe in to, to do right by the EFL, its member clubs, and and therefore it's the fans within that. Um, what can you tell us about Trevor Birch? Because he was involved at Swansea for, for such a long time, I'm, I'm hoping that we can be given some hope that the uh, the governance of the EFL will be boosted by this appointment.
4: Do you know what? I was hoping you were going to say some breaking news that Trevor Birch is going back to Swansea um, <laughs> and, and taking Joe Roden with him. Uh, but Well, first things first, it is a, it's a curious one, isn't it? Because purely because he's not been at Tottenham very long at all, you know, a couple of months and you don't expect someone to move on so fast. Um, that said, it's a fantastic appointment for the EFL and, you know, a real coup for them, I'd say. Uh, Trevor's... So, so experienced, you know, he played the game professionally. Um, He's had so much experience on the financial side, either working for clubs in their CEO role or going in um, to help clubs who are in financial crisis, you know, in administration um, and, you look at the EFL at the minute. Let's be honest, guys. It's a really, really challenging time for clubs with the pandemic. So, um, to have someone who's in charge of governance like Trevor Birch with all that experience, uh, I think it's I think it's a fantastic appointment. I think he'll do. Um, I think I think he's perfect for the job. Um, in terms of how I viewed him at Swansea, he came into a really hard situation um, with the club in a financial mess uh, in that first season under, under Graham Potter. Um, he, uh, I know he was baffled by lots of things that had gone before, um, financially at the club, but, um, everything he did thereafter felt spot on in terms of his transparency with people. He'd put out quite long statements, um, on a fairly regular basis, which was something that didn't happen at Swansea before he told people what was happening. He was honest. It wasn't always what you wanted to hear, but it was the truth and he was open with people in terms of his communication. He saw that as a really important part of the job. He's really ethical, got really good ethics and uh, he's just a genuinely good guy, very well connected and I'd be really confident to sort of say that I'm sure this appointment will be supported across the EFL.
2: Stu, thank you so much for joining us on the pod today. Um, Good news seemingly about the appointment of Trevor Birch. Lots of interesting nuggets from our chat as well and we're always uh, very pleased when we see you writing about the EFL or, or interviewing a manager, doing a profile as you do so well. So thanks so much for lending us your time today.
4: That's really kind. Lovely to talk, guys. Catch up soon.
1: This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. A full slate of EFL action this
2: weekend. Plenty to get our teeth stuck into. Plenty for you guys to get excited about. That's what we're going to discuss now. Previewing the weekend with the help of our sponsors, Paddy Power. George, in the championship this weekend, what will your eyes be drawn to?
3: straight towards the bottom of the table as ever. I I think the relegation picture in the championship is sneakily one of the most interesting areas of the EFL at the moment because you go back four, six weeks. Back then, Sheffield Wednesday had a 10-point deduction. That's been halved to five. You had Wickham on zero points, rooted to the bottom of, of the championship. We were told they had no chance of survival. They now got 11 points. They're just two points off the uh, off twenty first place, you had Coventry really struggling after their promotion. They've they're unbeaten now in their last six, and they're in nineteenth, so six points above twenty second. Teams like Nottingham Forest, like Derby, like QPR, who probably thought they it was going to be quite a hard year, quite a difficult season to get relegated. That's not the case anymore. It's now pretty well bunched, and the teams who looked like they were destined for the drop are picking up points. And that's why I'm looking at the two teams that I mentioned there: Wickham hosting Coventry. Uh, a look at our paddy, uh, the odds with our our sponsors, Paddy Power, will show that Wickham are the twenty-one to ten um, outsiders. The draw eleven to five. Coventry are thirteen to ten, and that seems pretty fair I mean when you look at Coventry's form as I mentioned I'm beaten in their last six they've only conceded three goals in those six games they've kept three clean sheets and it all was seemingly down to a Mark Robbins tactical switch where he you know they paid three at the back for the whole of last season Um, and uh, as they were promoted as champions from League One they started with three at the back this season but defensively were very very poor indeed and you and I watched the game together when we were working on Friday night back in November when they reverted to a back four at home to Birmingham and they drew that game nil-nil and even though it wasn't a vintage performance by any stretch it was It was an improvement it was a sign that they were getting more solid they were getting to grips with championship football and the run of good results and the run of good defensive performances has followed but it's not as simple as just reverting to a back four because mark robbins despite the early success of doing so in their last two games against rotherham and against luton he's gone back to his tried and tested back three with no adverse reaction at all they beat rotherham 3-1 on the weekend in a really dominant display and came up against a Luton side who have been very good this season. And, you know, it was a pretty drab, nil-nil draw. But at the same time, Luton created very little and Coventry's shape was much better. So they are improving rapidly. And the same can be said of Wickham. You know, we've spoken about Wickham a lot on this podcast, but what they continue to do is, is very impressive indeed. You know, they're, they're now proving themselves to be pretty hard to beat. Barnsley scraped past them on uh, in midweek. They sacrificed a 2-1 lead very late on against Preston, away from home, I should say, against Preston. On the weekend uh, and again it's been a while since you know i think all of their defeats have been by this by a solitary goal since losing to forest back at the beginning of november we saw them against uh, last time they played a home game which was against stoke and they didn't create a great deal and that is probably the issue here you look at their last three home games they haven't scored a single goal their goal at barnesley last night came from a penalty so it, it, it's not the sexiest game of football by any stretch but this is I think a game where both managers will consider this to be kind of as close to a must-win as you can get 15, 16, 17 games into the season. Um, and unless it's a draw, you know, I think you'll be looking at the likes of the teams I mentioned your derbies, Nottingham Forest are going to be hoping that it's Coventry who take the points because a lot of teams down there are going to want Wickham to revert back to their early season form of losing every game.
2: Well, if it's sexy you're after, George, look no further than Cardiff against Swansea live on the, on the box at 1230 on Saturday. These clubs have played each other more than 100 times in all competitions. The rivalry is about as fierce as it gets in the UK. Now, of course, this one will not have fans in attendance. Hopefully the only one ever basically that won't have fans in attendance, but make no mistake, I'm pretty confident that Neil Harris and that Steve Cooper We'll make sure their players are bang up for it. And I cannot wait to watch this one. I would just say we've been burned in the past. The last game between these two sides in January of 2020 was one of the worst uh, sort of fierce derbies I've seen, a nil-all draw. And hopefully they got that out of their system then and we're in for a treat this weekend. I think there's every reason to believe that we are because of the form and quality of these two sides and also how differently they try to play, which makes this an intriguing tactical encounter as well. We have to start with Cardiff, who, you know, if you told them... Two weeks ago, <laughs> that they'd be heading into their game against Swansea, uh, having rattled off four wins in a row, uh, they would have thought you're absolutely crazy because there was a point where the form was was very very poor and there were a couple of grumblings, weren't there? But it is four wins in a row, and they've looked excellent, you have to say. Kiefer Moore uh, coming to the fore; he's got four goals in that time, and Shay Ojo as well down the left side. Former Liverpool starlet, you might remember, he's been excellent too, and um. <laughs> it's it's an interesting one because swans are are obviously higher in the table they are the more likely side Uh, according to the bookies, to be promoted this season to finish higher than Cardiff. But you'd think that they're probably a little concerned about this. And they've got injury concerns at the back. Gwehi and Bennett are not fully ruled out, but certainly questionable for this weekend. And when you're coming up against Kiefer Moore, when you've got Glatzel coming off the bench later on in the game, who has got two goals in the last two midweeks, both very well taken, it's going to be a real test for whoever plays at the back for Swans. It might be... Joel Latibaudiere, first take that, who uh, who made his debut in midweek and looked very assured. And he is yet another former Under-17 World Cup winner under Steve Cooper. He's actually not on loan, though. He's a permanent signing. Uh, he's had an interesting last few years after leaving Manchester City and, you know, only 20 years old and could be the the sort of the next one for Swans, who have, have got such a good record of developing young talent over the last few years. There'll be great interest for those who follow the Welsh national team, as you would hope and expect in this fixture. Kiefer Moore, uh, Harry Wilson and Will Volks for Cardiff will be playing. Cabango, you'd think, at the back for Swansea. And Connor Roberts, their right wing back, who's been one of their key men this season as well. The way that both teams play, I would expect Swansea to have the majority of the ball here. You're looking at probably 60% possession or more. They'll try and attack down the sides with those wing-backs, Bidwell and Roberts. They'll look for sparks of creativity from whoever plays in the number 10 role. It could be Jan Dander. It could be Casey Palmer. They might try and get, or they will try and get, Andre Ayew on the ball as much as possible. He's probably the, the star man on the pitch, you'd have to say. And talking of the pitch, well, viewers, I think, will be wincing when they get their first shot of it, it is in terrible condition, uh, the pitch at the Liberty Stadium, which is a bit of a shame uh, when it comes to watching Swansea's possession-based style. But it might suit Cardiff, you'd think, um, fairly well because they are a direct side. They're not an ugly direct side, though. That they, they are They play direct football because it suits them, because it's effective, and it creates a lot of opportunities for them. So a really interesting game, two different styles, plenty of players to watch. I would also just flag up that Cardiff have scored 11 set-piece goals this season, the most in the league, but Swansea have only conceded two from set-pieces, which is one of the best records in the division. So uh, something's got to give, and uh, I can't wait to watch this one. Early on Saturday, Cardiff the favourite, to 7-5 with Paddy Power. <coughs> Swans 15-8 to the away side, and the draw 21-10. to It's going to be an absolute cracker in Wales
3: absolutely uh, i'm looking forward to that one although i remember being very excited as you mentioned by the fixture last season and often with these rivalries with these derbies it doesn't it's not quite as exciting as you'd hope but uh i'm going down into league one now and the game that i'm excited to see is lincoln hosting sunderland lincoln currently in second position with 32 points just two points off top spot i think even michael appleton's biggest fans out there wouldn't have expected lincoln to make this stronger start to the campaign and of course this is Lee Johnson in the dugout for Sunderland it's not his first league game because he decided to take charge of the Wigan match just hours after being appointed cynics out there may think that was just an attempt to get an early win under his belt it didn't come off but this to me feels like a potentially kind of seminal game for one of these sides for whoever wins this game because Lincoln as I say Second in the league, our expectations now risen to a level where they can expect to challenge or even achieve promotion automatically this campaign. I think a home win against Sunderland would go some way to secure that and to cement it. For Sunderland, this is a chance for them and a, and a very needed chance to wrestle back some of that advantage from teams towards the top because there's no doubt, even though they've had a poor run of form, even though results recently have, have not been good. The change was made in the dugout to remove Phil Parkinson and bring in Lee Johnson in order to try and trigger a reaction and not cast this a third season in League One aside. They will be hoping that Johnson can turn the form around and get them back into the mix for promotion. And looking at the personnel at Sunderland, I think one of the key players, and we've said it before, I think I said it on the podcast last week, that Lee Johnson has to work with is Will Grigg. Because it's absolute madness that they bought him for however many million pounds it was in the end after watching Sunderland Until I Die. I think it got up to about four, didn't it? And to bring in a player of that quality and with that goal scoring records, and he's only got eight goals in 50 odd, 55 games so far. And, and Lee Johnson's been talking about him in the press and saying that he believes that he can be the manager to get, I, I think this is the local journalist quote, to get Grig back on fire. It was interesting, though, reading, I mean, Lee Johnson is a manager who exudes so much confidence he always has. And, and I think part of that, that, uh, you know, not cockiness, but self-assuredness is going to be important when he comes into this Sunderland job. And hearing him talk about the way that he's going to try and get Gregg back scoring made me smile. He said, eventually, you'll get those three or four goals on the spin where you get those little ricochets or a lovely little finish. And all of a sudden, the confidence comes back and then you dink one over the keeper. As simple as that for LJ. But yeah, it's it's a game between two sides, one of which I think if we if we look before the season started, we'd have expected a role reversal here. We'd have thought Sunderland would be the team in second and Lincoln would be the team just outside the playoffs. I think we're going to learn a lot about these two sides on the back of this. I mean, Lincoln haven't been necessarily convincing in their recent run of form. They've won their last three games, yes. But if you look at the actual results themselves, they were 1-0 down at home to Wigan before a late show steered it back to, to 2-1. It was a pretty tight game at Rochdale on the weekend, which they ended up winning 2-0. You know, it's not a case where they're necessarily kind of blasting teams away, but they are very, very solid and they seem to find a way to create chances consistently. Um, so it's a tough one for Lee Johnson, certainly a lot tougher than the Wigan game, which they lost. Uh, but, but I do think whoever wins this game, it's just going to be the start. I mean, for, for Lincoln, it wouldn't be the start, but it could just be a moment in the season they'll look back at and say, yeah, that was a pretty big victory.
0: On this week's From the Horse's Mouth podcast, the lads are joined by Shane Lowry, fresh from his Masters performance at Augusta. Here's what Shane's caddy was too scared to say to Tiger Woods after his disastrous 10 on the 12th.
4: Because anytime he hit a bad drive or an average drive, he'd say to Joe, his caddy. That was like one of yours. And we stood on the 13T and Bo said to me, what do you think he'd say if I said to him, I bet you wish Joe hit that one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Search Paddy Power on your podcast provider to listen now. Paddy Power. 18 plus. B-A-Y-I.O.
2: The biggest interest for me in League One this weekend is in Wigan and their game against Accrington. I've spoken about Swans and Cardiff. They've played each other over 100 times in all comps in their history. Well, Wigan and Accrington will be meeting in the league for the first time ever this weekend. They've played once a couple of years ago in the EFL Trophy. And now they take each other on in league action. And if there's one thing that makes me love the English Football Pyramid, it's that it has existed for over 100 years and you can still get teams playing each other for the first time in our glorious third tier. And of course, there's more reason than that to talk about this one because Accrington are the form side in League One and seemingly still kind of going under the radar, probably because of managerial changes at Sunderland, managerial issues, dare I say it, with Ipswich Town. Accrington just quietly zooming up the table. They haven't lost in seven. They've won five of their last seven and they are seventh in the table, but with the third best points per game uh, record because they've actually missed a fair few games a couple of months ago. They've got two games in hand over the majority of teams around them uh, and three over some. So a really interesting uh, team to look at at the moment. And the busy schedule seems, and it's easy to say this on a good run of form, but it seems to be suiting Accrington. It almost seems to be helping them. And, I mean, Stu's just talked about the fact that teams are not really able to train. Teams are not really able to work on tactics. And it strikes me that having a manager who's been at a club for a long time who has a very set way of playing and whose players, for the most part, who have been there previously, understand their roles, understand the sort of central themes uh, to how their team plays are probably going to reap the benefits because I suppose they are repeatable in a sense or more repeatable because um, they've been doing that for so long. So John Coleman, miracle worker, of course, with Accrington um, and his 3-5-2 system clearly working very well at the moment with a, a settled and hungry Accrington side. And it's not just a first 11. You know, he's not leaning on just 11 players, but they've got some good fringe options as well. They've got, you know, good substitutes to bring on uh, in, in all areas of the pitch. And that tactical style, I keep coming back to it. Just if you watch their games, they just seem very, very comfortable. And that's not just with the ball. Accrington are, and always have been under Coleman, a team who don't dominate possession. They're very rarely at the top of the sort of average possession charts, if you will. But if you watch them, You really appreciate the way that they play when they do have the ball, they get it down and they move it swiftly through the thirds and they know how to create chances. Uh, Bizarrely, they've got a bit of a, a statistical quirk where they've taken the most long shots in League One per game, which would normally be something of a red flag for us. You know, basically low probability chances, a lot of pot shots from range, but they've also taken the most shots from inside the six yard box per game. So, what you can see there is, you know, they're not scared to have a go, and they've clearly got the players that they trust to take shots from range and test the goalkeeper. But when they've got the ball, they also have consistent way of working it to create good chances inside the six-yard box for the likes of Charles and Colby Bishop, their two strikers. Without the ball, they don't press particularly high, but they very rarely allow their opposition good chances. Um, Again, no individual stars, I wouldn't say. Pritchard, the number 10, just signed a new deal. They picked him up from Spurs, where he'd been released after his youth career. And he's really growing into his role, becoming a key player for them. But I think you can go through every part of the team and pick someone out. I think this is a classic example of a team being greater than the sum of its parts. They're up against Wigan this weekend. Wigan down at the bottom of League One on 11 points from 15 games. They got that incredible win at the Stadium of Light last weekend, in which they had only one shot in the whole game. Expertly finished by Kyle Joseph uh, and then defended that lead fantastically, uh, you know, rode their luck at times. But generally, I was pretty impressed with with the way that they did it. They are still waiting to see if the preferred bidders uh, are going to be able to take over the club. The EFL's owners and directors test much maligned in the past for who it has let slip through the net, uh, seems to be bearing its teeth somewhat here because, um, yeah, I think one of the three people involved in the bid that was accepted by administrators two months ago did fail the owners and directors test. So he has withdrawn along with a bit of funding uh, and they've got one more week of exclusivity uh, by the administrators to pass uh, this test again. So hopefully that will get done. Hopefully Wigan can start moving forward Certainly on the pitch, they are well, they need some support. I think it's fair to say a caretaker manager in Liam Richardson in charge. They've lost 10 of their 15 league games this season. Uh, the stats don't reflect that well. They've taken the fewest shots on target and they've faced the most. So it's going to be a tough game for them against Accrington Stanley. They might say that they've got a, a stronger history, but when it comes to the two sides this season in League One, Accrington um, certainly the stronger side, and they go into this as favourites with Paddy Power, 6-5 with Wigan, 11-5 and the draw 23-10. to 10. I'll be keeping a close eye on this one, George.
3: Yeah, I'm going to be looking at Forest Green against Cambridge in League Two. It is third against seventh and a game between two sides who I think have really impressed at times this season, certainly Forest Green, who are now starting to look I think that you know the data's always basically said they're one of the class teams in the division and they went through a difficult run of form earlier on in the campaign but their last four league games have yielded eight points last time you saw them they were beating Harrogate one 0 away from home the only caveat to that good form I would say is you know you look at the two wins away at Southend and Harrogate the two most out of form teams in the division and they didn't make it easy for themselves. This feels like a Forest Green side who often don't make their dominance count in terms of the scoreline itself, but they've got so many good players throughout the team. And and Jamil Matt is showing a goal-scoring form that we maybe hadn't seen from him for a while um, so far. Ebu Adams playing in just behind one of the most talented players in League Two. And it does feel like if there is a team who could kind of really catch fire in the coming coming weeks. It could be Forest Green. The fact that they're currently sitting in third position, despite not really playing up to their kind of maximum ability, um, it it feels like they could be one to maybe click and and really push on and challenge Newport and Cheltenham at the top end. But Cambridge are the really interesting side for me in this one, because I I think we started to accept that Mark Bonner's Cambridge side were... The real deal, you know, were a side who we misjudged at the beginning of the season. You know, they were pegged as bottom half, mid-table at best. Uh, A manager, Mark Bonner, who we didn't know a great deal about beyond his his caretaker spell last season. And very quickly, they proved themselves to be a good side in the division with with Paul Mullins' goals and uh, Joe Ironside coming into the team as well. Whereas Houlihan in centre midfield, it just felt like a a team who, who had clicked under Bonner. And as soon as we suggested that and accepted that, the results have have gone. I mean, their last two performances at home, there's been a bit of a joke going around that Cambridge hate playing in front of their own fans because their last two games, both at the Abbey, they've been beaten by Mansfield 1-0 and beaten by Oldham 2-1. And those are two sides who they would not expect to be beaten by. So I'm looking at this one mainly for a reaction, just to see what we're going to get from this Cambridge side. Were they actually a flash in the pan? What is Mark Bonner capable of when he's now faced with some adversity for the first time in his Cambridge managerial career because it's so tight at the top as well. You look at the teams below them, Cambridge on 25 points in seventh place, but Morecambe, just three points behind them, are down in 13th. So it doesn't take much, as Port Vale found out recently, a few defeats on the trot and you can find yourself down in mid table very, very quickly. It's going to be a really difficult game for Cambridge as well, away at Forest Green. Um, but two teams with... Lofty ambitions for the season, going toe to toe, but certainly Forest Green are certainly the likely winners given their run of form and their home advantage, and that is reflected in Paddy Power's odds. Forest Green, the even money favourites, the draw eleven to five. Cambridge to stop the rot are five to two.
2: Yeah, from third against seventh to the the sort of bread in that sandwich, I suppose, because it's Cheltenham in second, just above Forest Green, against Salford in eighth, just below Cambridge. Uh, Richie Wellens is. First game in charge to Salford was live on TV against Bolton on a Friday night back in November. And it was a desperately disappointing performance and he was very clear about that afterwards. And that would have stuck in some people's minds, I think. And people may have missed that since then, it's three wins in four. So you'd say it's been a good start for Wellens at Salford and they're moving up the table just outside the playoff places on goal difference at the moment. What I would say is, Having dug a little deeper and, and dug a little deeper into some of those wins recently, I still don't think that the performances of this Salford side are particularly impressive. And so I'm trying not to be blinded by that run of three wins in four. I think that Wellens has plenty to thank Ash Hunter for, uh, for certainly for two of those wins in which Hunter has scored wonderful solo uh, individual goals. And it's also notable to me that they've lost to the two best sides that they've played in in his first five games at Bolton and Carlisle so this is for me a big litmus test for Salford under Wellens his sixth game in charge hopefully some of his Wellens ball ideologies starting to get through to his players and he's up against a Cheltenham side that basically demand a certain level of performance from their opposition at this level and if that's not matched then Cheltenham win League Two games in their sleep. They've won 10 of 16 so far this season, and they've left some early hiccups behind to win four of their last five and ease into that sweet, sweet two points per game tally uh, that that equates to 92 points over the course of a season. And surely, if they maintain it, we'll have them in the warm embrace of the automatic spots, that top three come the end of the season. Uh, There's been a lot of chat, mostly from us, about their long throws recently. Ben Toza, the centre-back, has an absolute trebuchet, um, flings it to the back post. And Will Boyle has scored three headers from Toza long throws this season. There have been at least three other goals scored by Cheltenham um, following a sort of pinball caused by Toza's long throws. That is something for Salford to... Uh, Well, to think about, but it's not just that. They do create chances in open play as well. They've got a very settled system, Cheltenham, under Mike Duff. Um, it's, It's the sort of system that, a bit like what I said with Accrington, it's just so repeatable. It feels like they could play... You know they could play with their eyes closed. Basically, they're so well drilled, and um, the wing backs Hussey and Blair very important in their build up play and in delivering balls into the box. They've got a number of of strikers that they sort of rotate between um, in that two up top, and Azaz and Circum. Uh, the centre midfielders who break forward have been really impressive in the last few weeks. That was a, uh, a strong part of, of their team last year with Broom and with Jake Doyle-Hayes, both of whom uh, left the club in the summer. Doyle-Hayes was only on loan and Broom was sold to Peterborough. So important for them to have Azaz and Circum performing and filling that void. Um, a really good month or so for Cheltenham, looking to build on that. Uh, against this Salford side. They've got Bolton next, so uh, some big games for them. But I would categorise this as a good test for Salford under Wellens to see where they're at, uh, given that they were joint favourites to win the title pre-season. It's a chance for for Cheltenham's Mike Duff to flex his muscles as well against a, a manager that took this title last season. I think it's going to be a fascinating game. I mean Paddy Power can barely split them. Salford are 8 to 5 and Cheltenham are 13 to 8. I had to do a quick bit of maths in my head there, but that tells me that there is just a just a hair between them. Salford just about favourites for this one the draw 23-10. to If you keep an eye on one game in League 2 this weekend, I think it should be Salford against Cheltenham. Um, We're looking forward to the weekend action across the EFL. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Totally Football League show Extra Time. Uh, Next week we'll be back. There is another full slate of midweek fixtures which we are very excited to tell you all about and we'll be previewing the weekend action as well. No doubt we'll line up a special guest just just like we did this week with Stu James. If you're subscribed to this podcast channel, that means you'll also get the musings and reaction on the Monday pod, the Totally Football League show as the guys look back at the weekend that we've previewed on this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please do join us again next week and have a smashing weekend.
0: You've been listening to the Totally Football League show,
2: part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and following at the Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all the Athletics football podcasts on Apple, Spotify
3: and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football League Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media